I think that there's something about being in a space collectively and going through a journey and in that moment feeling each other in the space, feeling all of the ways in which our neurons are crackling and that crackling is causing some sort of reaction that changes our DNA. And I think that that's the way in which theater can be he healing. Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for house lights. Go. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody. Welcome to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here today with Lynn Nottage. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Catherine. I'm really delighted to be here today. Well, I'm a big fan of your work and so excited to have an opportunity to sort of dig in and learn more about you today. So I'm going to start with our usual start, and that's the bullet points. Lynn Nottage is a storyteller. She works as a playwright, screenwriter, and producer. She is the first woman in history to win two Pulitzer Prizes for drama. The first for her play Ruined, which Echo produced in 2017, and the second for her play Sweat. Recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award, 2007, and was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2019. She's also the co-founder of Market Road Films. She was a writer and producer on the first season of She's Gotta Have It with Spike Lee. This year, she has three theatrical projects playing in New York the operatic adaptation of her play Intimate Apparel at the Lincoln Center, her new comedy Clyde Second Stage Theater, and MJ the Musical, Broadway at the Neil Simon Theater. If we listed all of your accomplishments, Lynn, it would take the whole interview. So please, let's start with a little bit more about yourself. Would you share how you got started in theater? Sure. That's, that's such a big question. And it's really nearly impossible to answer because it means pinpointing the exact moment when I began thinking of myself as a, a theater artist, I know that I entered theater professionally with the production of Crumbs from the Table of Joy at Second Stage Theater many years ago. But I think that I got into theater when I was probably five years old and I wrote my very first impromptu play for my brother and I to perform for my mom and her her company. And I got that first delicious applause and I think that's the moment now looking back that I became a theater artist and addicted to storytelling and the rewards of storytelling. Yeah, I think that many people have a, a journey that's similar to that. It's somehow it's in the blood and you discover that it's there and then you make another discovery and that's when to make it your profession. You know, it sounds like it might have been kind of seamless for you. Maybe that first five-year-old play was your first professional piece for your for your mom. Yeah, I don't think that entering the arts is ever, ever a seamless process. I think that there, throughout the the course of making the decisions to, you know, jump jump without the, the parachute and free fall into a creative 
life doesn't come come easy. And there are many other choices that I made in the course of my life prior to becoming a writer that could have taken me on many different paths. But thankfully, there's always an individual or something that pulled me back onto this path. Yeah, yeah. When you when you think about those times and those individuals, is there a particular mentor or a mentor or two who have helped to shape your artistic practice? Yeah. Looking back, I think that there were two people who were really instrumental and pushing me in the direction toward being a playwright. This is besides my mother and my grandmother and my father, who are foundational to everything that I do. But when I was in college, I had the good fortune to take a course with a professor named George Bass, who at the time ran Rights and Reasons Theater, which was the Black Theater in Providence. And I really just admired the way he approached his craft, not just as an artist, but as a, as like a shaman, as a spiritualist, that he really was deeply invested in figuring out how theater could be used as a tool for healing, in particular, the African-American community. And I took this playwriting course with him and he responded to my writing and just pulled me along throughout the time that I was at Brown University, um, where I entered pre-med not knowing that I was going to take this particular journey, but he's the person who I kept returning to. And then in my senior year, I took a course with playwright Paula Vogel, and she was the first woman playwright that I'd ever studied with. I just hadn't had the opportunity prior to that to really encounter the writing of a lot of women. And she's the person who emboldened me to think of playwriting as a career as opposed to a hobby. Because up until that point, I thought, oh, isn't this wonderful, but I'm going to have to make other career choices. If I want to write, I'm going to have to be a journalist or find some other way to flex that particular muscle. And she said, no, I think that you really do have the skills and the risk-taking gene to be a playwright. I'm so glad that you said that because doesn't it take both of those things when you decide, yes, art is going to be my career? Doesn't it take that risk-taking gene too? Yes, yes, it does. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I love that. So you've described yourself as as having a nomadic imagination, and that's such an evocative phrase. What does that mean for you, and how does it affect your creative process? Well, uh, well I, I think, you know, my motto is to replace judgment with curiosity, and I think that throughout my life from the time when I was very young, I have been a very curious person, and I have followed that curiosity to many interesting and faraway places that have fueled my creativity. And I think that that has subsequently really become foundational to my art practice is that I'm, I follow my imagination. And as we know, our imagination takes us to a multitude of places, some places that are surprising or some places that are challenging or some places that are truly terrifying. And rather than backing away from uh, those particular challenges, I think that I I like to lean into it. Years ago, I challenged myself to do every single year something that terrified me and that frightened me. And sometimes that's related to my own writing. Sometimes it's just related to the way in which I move through the, the world. But I find that these personal prompts are really helpful in stretching my imagination, particularly when I'm feeling blocked or stuck. That is both risk-taking and brave, I think, <laughs> because going to those darkest corners is never, there's no, there's no way to make that be a comfortable thing. 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that what's fascinating is cre- creativity is really about stepping into those unilluminated places and bringing some sort of light into those spaces. But you, as we know, it's like when you're stepping into that darkness, you don't know what you're going to encounter. And that's where the risk taking takes place. What is the one thing you want to be braver about as an artist? Let me give some th- thought. You know, as I mentioned, it's like I try to lean into my fears as an artist. And that's just part of my practice is to go into those spaces that make me uncomfortable. So I think that if I want to be braver as an artist, I, I think a lot of it has to do about is about carving out more space for myself, time to make the art and not worry about the marketplace as much because I, I, I think it's easy to think a, a lot of times that out of sight, out of mind. And so there is this real drive in this culture to constantly be um, producing quickly and to be producing for the marketplace. And I think that if I were to do something or make that adjustment, it would be to remove myself from it for a period of time and deeply invest just in my work and my craft. I think that's both a great answer and great advice <laughs> because we do have to do that as well. I, I was my initial impulse was to say as theater arts, everybody has to do Everyone. that. Everybody has to pull away and decompress because otherwise you've expended all of your energy. You don't have anything to work with the next time something provocative comes around. So so thank you for, for that insight. One of the hallmarks of your work is the extensive research that you do, which I guess is once you've taken that imaginative leap and and found the thing you're going to talk about, then you're going to ground it with some things that will maybe help it relate to other people. I don't know your process and I don't want to put words into your mouth. So the research in your playwriting process, why is that important to you and, and what effect do you want it to have in your work? I, I think that research for me just began once again from a place of curiosity and wanting to understand aspects about the world that I didn't know. And sometimes it stemmed from having these questions and discovering that there weren't easy answers, that I couldn't necessarily pick up a book and find exactly what I wanted or look in the newspaper. And so I found that I had to dig deeper And digging deeper, I began to find things that were interesting and revelatory and stories that I felt needed to be heard. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really lean into research as as a playwright. And also it's it's a form of procrastination. I can still feel like I'm incredibly active and creative in moments in which I am not literally writing. I think that so often we think that writing is the process of sitting at your computer and and banging away. But I, I, I think that there isn't enough space uh, given to just the mere act of rumination and reflecting and reading. And I think that's why I like research, is that it is this incredibly expansive journey that in the end ends up fueling my writing in ways that I could never anticipate before I began doing that research. Yeah, I I understand that from the perspective of the other work that I do. And I do find, and maybe this is the case with you, that I've got to have a little time to process what I've just learned. 
yeah. before I can turn it into something or I can use it in a way that's really effective or evocative or whatever I'm, 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 I'm looking for at that point. And, and so I'm glad I started to laugh when you said it's really procrastination because I thought you were making a joke. But no, that is a part of the process. And so procrastination doesn't necessarily have to be that terrible thing. It can be that moment, yeah. you know, when you're taking time just to process what you've just learned. I, I want to ask you about a project that that you, you have just, I guess, completed. Intimate Apparel is now an opera. <laughs> and I wanted to know about the inspiration of that in terms of this. You spoke about the loss of history because Black women's stories weren't important enough to write down, which uh, that resonates for me so much. How do you see your role as a Black storyteller telling those stories today in 2022? Well, I, I, I think of that I've always been really deeply invested in telling the stories of those folks who are closest and nearest and dearest to me, who my family. And I think often about the richness of the storytelling that occurred around my mother's table. I think of the richness of stories that I heard from my grandmother and my great aunts and who were great raconteurs and who lived these incredible lives and how rare it was for me to encounter their stories outside of the spaces that we created for ourselves. And so it remains really important for me to amplify their stories, to place them in the public record. Um, when I was doing, you mentioned Intimate Apparel, when I was doing the research for Intimate Apparel, which was very loosely based on my great-grandmother, Ethel, who came to New York at the turn of the century, and she was a seamstress, and she met a man who she was corresponding with who came from Panama, and they married. That's the foundation of, of the storytelling. But as I was going about doing my research, I found that there was so little in the historic archive about a woman like Ethel. And I did my due diligence. I come through as thorough as I could. And I, I became really frustrated by the fact that she had so successfully been expunged from the New York history. And so I felt even now it's really important for us to place our story center stage and to be part of weaving what we have come to understand as the American narrative and to take our rightful place because we know that Black women have been instrumental in the building of this country in so many different ways. And we are the ones who are the, the first to be erased. And so I, I think that it's been super important for me to assert my voice and to be unapologetic about asserting my voice and unapologetic about celebrating the women who I admire and who I'd love. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the idea of, of theater being a healing thing. And I think that that happens when you can reconnect people with an entire history that they didn't know anything about. I had a moment when I saw Hidden Figures mm. and I looked at my mom. I took my mom with me to see the movie and I said, I am 62 years old at the time. Why am I just hearing this story? Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Why am I just hearing this story now? This is a story that I should have been able to share with my sons. This is a story that I should have grown up knowing as a black yeah. woman in America. And then you, in those moments, you have that kind of paradoxical experience of at once being feeling really proud and but also, you know, feeling the sadness 
mm-hmm. that you spent 62 years without ever engaging with these brilliant women who were yeah. instrumental in getting the astronauts to the moon. It's like, how would our lives have been different if we had known that these Black women were working at NASA? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I just, I love the idea that, as you said, it is it is a dual moment. But you do feel that surge of pride And in that surge of pride does come some healing. So let me ask you about that. If you could sort of expand upon the idea, this is my experience of it, but could you expand on that idea of how theater can be healing? Well, I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which theater can be healing. And I think that it's multifold. I, I think that the healing can begin from the first moments that we as artists cross that threshold and decide that we're going to tell a story collaboratively and the way in which we tell that story and we invite the characters into our bodies and on that stage can be an act of just immediate catharsis for us. And then when you then invite the audience to be in conversation with those characters who are going through things that may be familiar or things that may be unfamiliar, but relatable, that the audience has a response. And that response can be a deep sigh, which is sort of letting go of some energy that's been trapped in the lungs, or it can be laughter, which is sort of the expansion of of the lungs, you know, letting something out and then letting something in. And I think that there's something about being in a space collectively and going through a journey and in that moment, feeling each other in the space, feeling all of the ways in which our neurons are crackling and that crackling is causing some sort of reaction that changes our DNA. And I think that that's the way in which theater can be healing. And I think that a lot of times we don't even know until we leave in the, how the entirety of that experience has changed us and when it's good. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and, and because you do then you 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 ruminate on it. You, yeah. you might you might have the conversation after the show or with friends over drinks, whatever. You may go home and not know why you can't shake this feeling. But there is a visceral reaction when Absolutely. it's good. <laughs> you know, when it's good. Yeah. Or even, you know, and even sometimes when it's bad, I've gone to see things that have enraged me. And what it demands is that I ask myself, well, why was I angry? Mm. Was it? (laughs) Why did I respond? Why, you know, did I reject what I saw? And sometimes I want to go home and write in response to something that really bothered me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can can you think of a specific time? I can't think of of times in which I've been in the theater and been challenged by work and had to go home and think about was it the work itself that challenged me? Was it what I brought to that experience that left me not willing willing to fully engage? Or was it the work itself that didn't sort of fulfill on the promise? Mm. I I love that you said something that I brought to the experience because I think that as artists, as theater artists, we know that 
every member of the audience brings their own thing to the show. I don't know if audiences necessarily know that. And later in the show, I, I, I do want to get your opinion on ways that we can get those people back into the theater to experience this thing that we can create for them. But I'm wondering if that's part of it, them knowing how much they bring to the experience of theater as well as what they're coming to see. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's really it's really interesting. And you had raised Intimate Apparel, the opera earlier, and it was done at Lincoln Center Theater, which is a theater and it's not a space that generally invites opera onto the stage. And so this was a grand experiment. And what we discovered is that a lot of the audience wasn't primed to sit and listen to an opera. And and they were incredibly surprised when they sat down, lights went down, and these beautiful operatic voices hit their ears. And you could hear the restlessness and the discomfort because they weren't prepared to meet the, the that p- particular piece of art. And what we found mm. is that we had to prime the audience. And from the moment they stepped in, let them understand this is an opera. This is not musical theater. This is not a play that it's, it, yes, it's in a theater in which you're used to having those kind of experiences, but this is going to be a new experience. And once people signed that contract, they were able to meet the work where it was. But prior to signing that contract, people really pushed back and rejected it and felt as though somehow we had been dishonest with them because they were expecting Intimate Apparel, the musical, or Intimate Apparel, the play. Mm, Yeah, that makes such a good point because the audience doesn't ever want to come in and think that you've tricked them. (laughs) So, yeah, you don't want to do that to your audience. So that's such a good point. Such a good point that you made. So I'm glad that you shared the story of your personal connection to intimate apparel. I want to ask you now about Sweat. So you've written a number of plays and projects about the town of Reading, Pennsylvania, including Sweat. What draws you to that community for your storytelling? Um, Well, this it's a somewhat long response and I will try and be as brief as as possible. But Sweat came out of a commission from Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which had invited a group of playwrights to write about American revolutions. And I had spent two years trying to figure out exactly which revolution I wanted to write about. And at the time, we were undergoing an economic downturn in this country. And I thought, why don't I write about the de-industrial revolution? which was happening at the moment and the way in which it was reshaping the American narrative. And once I seized upon that idea, I had to then set apart about finding a community or a town that I felt was really representative of what was happening in the country overall, which was a microcosm of the experiences that a lot of people in these big de-industrial regions were going through. And Reading was the place that we landed. And Reading in part because it was in driving distance from New York City and had to get there. But uh, it also was a, a diverse city, majority Latinx city. It was a city that had had real success for a number of years in textiles and steel and agriculture. A, a, a city which was a, sort of had problems that were emblematic of what was happening throughout the, the country and was really being reshaped by the economic stagnation. And I began traveling there and asking people questions. And the more questions that I asked, the more questions I had. And then a year and a half later, <laughs> I thought, okay, let me begin writing a play. And so 
that's really how I came to Reading, Pennsylvania, is in search yeah. of a play. Well, you found you found not just one. I think you found some really good materials. You mentioned the contract with the audience. I I, I wonder at that level of the the deindustrialization. You made me think about the contract that people believe they have with their town. You know, this town is going to sustain my family. It's going to sustain my children. It's going to sustain my grandchildren. And then when that disappears, what happens to the spirit of of that community? Is that one of the things that you wanted to address? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you said it really beautiful. I think that at core of sweat is a group of steelworkers who find themselves locked out of their factory and feel betrayed and feel as though they had signed, you know, the, the, the Horatio Alger American contract that if you work hard, you'll you'll be rewarded and your next generation will do even better. And in this town, when I was interviewing people, I found that that was not the case. I uh, One of the questions that I always asked folks in, in Reading is to describe their town. And people would inevitably say Reading was. Wow. Very rarely did people say, well, Reading is this way or or think about Reading in, in the future tense. And that's when I realized that there was real sort of corruption in that particular town's narrative is that they couldn't imagine themselves in present or, or future tense, that they were stuck in this sort of no, nostalgic moment in which they felt that there was still real possibility and promise. But as we know, that possibility and promise wasn't open to everyone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That Reading was as the, fu- the future is gone. Yeah. That had to give you a moment as a wordsmith to hear that, yeah. not just once or twice. It had to give you a real moment. I, I want to ask you about the I guess it's not a movement because, as you say, theater is uh, theater artists are pretty seamless. But you've written plays and musicals, and now a libretto for your opera based on intimate apparel. So the question is this: How do you decide what form fits the story that you want to tell? You know, that's such a great question. And through much of my career, I was a playwright, and so when idea came. You know, the first place that I ventured to was playwriting. Play but now what I've realized is that I, I have all these muscles that haven't been exercised over the years and that there are a multitude of ways in which I can tell the same stories. And I think I definitely learned that when I was adapting my play Intimate Apparel into the, the opera is that I had the story that could exist in two very different spaces and live and breathe in ways that were fulfilling, but 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 different. And I and I I, I love that. And so I I don't know exactly how to answer your question, other than the form is dictated by the content. Yeah, I, it's you know I just some things sing to you, and you think this. I hear the songs. I hear the music in this particular piece. And I don't know that I can tell the stories expansively and as completely in just the play form. Sometimes you want people to sing their emotions. Yeah, you want to have that extra level of yeah. emotional content. So yeah. I, th- this, is be- this question is begging to come out of my mouth, so I just have to ask you. So now that you've had that experience of creating an opera from intimate apparel, 
Is there anything that you've already written that you're tempted to go back to now and examine with the eyes of a librettist or a musical theater from a musical theater perspective? Yeah, I, I did years ago. I wrote a, a play called Las Meninas, which is not done that often. So it's about the the wife of King Louis the Fourteenth, who was the Sun King, and her relationship with uh, an African man who was a little person, and the child who was the subsequent result of that love affair. And the play is really funny and irreverent and I just and grand because it takes place in the court of Louis the Fourteenth. And there's something about it that I feel lends itself to the operatic world. There's something really big and beautiful and 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 fun. Yeah, I can I can see the potential in there. And it's just that's another one of those stories that has that ever been talked about in a history book. Well, no, that's one we keep quiet. <laughs> you know, it's so. And it's so interesting because I found this particular story in a book by historian Ivan von Sardema, and it was just one paragraph. And, and that one paragraph really uh, tugged at my imagination. And it, over the years, I thought, I wonder, is it true and if it's true, why don't we know more? And I set about just trying to figure out um, whether the story was true or not. And it is true. And I found a wealth of information and uh, did some some scholarly work, which people have since used because I went so deep. That's wonderful. That's a gift. <laughs> that is such a gift. And then maybe somebody, if if not you, although I'm something is telling me that you Lynn, you need to go back and write that opera. <laughs> but yeah, just in case you don't, the research is there. The research is there. Yeah. So we're going to take a brief intermission, but please don't go anywhere because when we come back for Act Two, we'll be taking a question from our listeners and discussing Lynn's very busy year. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yes, you, listening to this podcast right now. Have you subscribed to Echo Offstage yet? You won't want to miss our next season coming up in the spring of 2023. Follow Echo Theater online for updates. But all of these fascinating conversations are only made possible by support from our dedicated donors. Echo Offstage is a production of Echo Theater Dallas, the Southwest premier theatrical organization dedicated to producing works by women plus playwrights. This season of Echo Offstage is made possible by the Ray Charitable Trust, the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture, the Echo 100, and our anonymous donor who has generously sponsored our fifth season. We would love to add your name to that list, unless of course you wish to remain anonymous. If you want to support Echo Offstage, you too can sponsor an episode of the podcast or even an entire season. And I will thank you by name on the show, or you can remain anonymous. If you cannot donate to the podcast, you can still support our work by reviewing the podcast on your preferred listening platform, which helps new listeners find the show. Or you can share this episode on your social media or tell a friend about Echo Offstage. Word of mouth is still our best advertiser. And make sure to join Echo's email list and follow Echo Theater Dallas on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter 
for a chance to submit your own questions for our guests and for updates on ECHO's other upcoming projects. This fall, ECHO Theater is producing the winner of our Big Shout Out International Play Festival, selected out of over 500 submissions. Mark your calendar for the world premiere of Founders Keepers by Aurora Belkey, directed by Caroline Hamilton at the Bathhouse Cultural Center in Dallas, Texas on September 16, 2022. Set in the near future, with democracy crumbling in Washington, D.C. in flames, Founders Keepers follows a group of fifth-grade girls who are tasked by the government to rewrite the U.S. Constitution. Friendship, power, and zit cream collide in this fresh, vulnerable, hilarious comedy about what it means to grow up in a broken democracy. Running Thursday through Saturday at the Bathhouse Cultural Center from September 16th through October 8th, 2022. For tickets and other information, visit echotheater.org. Tickets on sale starting Friday, August 26th. In the meantime, be sure to support other productions in the DFW area. This week's Spotlight shines on Kitchen Dog Theater's 32nd season, kicking off in November with The Sound Inside by Adam Rapp, nominated for six Tony Awards in 2020, including Best Play. Next up, opening in February, is John J. Caswell Jr.'s Man Cave. The New York Times described Man Cave as a political drama wrapped in the spooky pleasures of the horror genre. Subscriptions are on sale now at kitchendogtheater.org or call 214-953-1055. And now back to this week's interview. Welcome back to Act Two of Echo Offstage. I'm talking with Lynn Nottage. So I have a listener question for you, Lynn. Alex asks, what's a topic you've never seen talked about on stage that you'd love to write a play about? Wow, that's that's a that's that's a big question. I think that one of the topics that I've been thinking a lot about that you don't see enough explored on stage is climate change. I would love to figure out a way to tell a story that takes the subject and brings it home in ways that the audience can really feel it, and when they leave the theater, they want to do something about it. Yes. I think that that is right now what I'm thinking a lot of, about because I think that climate change is fueling immigration issues. It's fu fueling political unrest. It's fueling racism. And so I think that it's really key to where we're moving in the next 20 years. And I think that it's incumbent upon us as artists as playwrights, as interpreters of the culture, to really dig in and figure out how to tell this story in a visceral way. Wow. Well, I, as as one of your self-avowed fans, would love to hear your words wrapped around that issue. So if, if encouragement from a fan is in health, then please, yes, let's have that. That is so interesting because I, I, I agree that it's, it's that issue that some people kind of teehee that's not really a thing about and some people are really passionate about. But the bottom line is that it's going to affect us in ways that we can't even foresee right now. Yeah. But I think about health impacts. Health, everything. If, if there's going to be sort of massive, 
migration around the, the world, which is going to shift the demographics of every single country. And we're going to have to deal with the repercussions of, of that. And I don't think mm. we're prepared. You yeah. know, we bristle at the tiny bit of immigration that we have right now. But imagine <laughs> in, in 25 years. Sure. If your town is underwater, you're going to move yeah. somewhere. You're going to move. And, it's, <laughs> and, and people within our borders, we're going to have internally displaced people in the United States mm-hmm. who are going to have yeah. to move because of shifts in their environment. Wow. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a that's one of those head exploding topics that absolutely needs to be addressed. For our listeners, if you would like to have a question featured on our next episode of Echo Off Stage, be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas and watch our stories. You've worked on a number of adaptations from adapting the novel The Secret Life of Bees for the stage to adopting your own play, Intimate Apparel, as we've mentioned, into an opera. Do you approach an adaptation differently than you do when you are originating a work? Yeah, I mean, the two adaptations that you mentioned are really different. One, Intimate Apparel, is based on my own work, and I had a real level of intimacy with those characters. And so I had to figure out how to take a story, which I knew very well, and 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 turn it into another form. And opera is really, an opera libretto is very different than a, a play. It's much more truncated. It's economic. You know, play that's 90 pages, that libretto has to be 25 to 30 pages. And so I had to figure out how to take a play that's expansive, that's long, that's very detailed and turn it into a libretto, which means cutting out a lot of things that I loved and getting rid of a lot of my darlings. But one of the things that I was able to do in conversation with the composer, Ricky Ian Gordon, is figure out how to economize. And very early on, he said that I had to allow him to be the collaborator and to be the storyteller as well. And that on the page... It could take maybe three sentences for a character to say, I love you. But he said in a libretto, all you have to say is, I love you. And he will create the music that sells oh, it. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, an, it was an act of surrender. And Secret Life of Bees was a really different process because I was approaching a much beloved novel written by a wonderful novelist, Sue Monk Kidd. And I had to really think about how I could honor her characters, but also take some ownership of those characters, which you have to do enable to to live inside of them and interpret them. And so it took a little longer to take possession of that that story and push some of her voice out (laughs) and allow more of my voice and my collaborators in. And it was a really interesting process. And it's the first time I'd ever done something like that. I have adopted um, novels for for the screen, but never for for the theater, never putting those characters on stage in three dimensions. So it was a challenge for me. I will not lie, but it was a challenge that I really enjoyed facing down. Yeah. I I love it that you said that you needed to have your own relationship with those characters and let that voice come through as well, because otherwise, whose voice are you writing in? And 
and the balance, you know? And and, and, and it was important because we made a very big decision um, for the, the play just because we don't don't have as much real estate as a novel to tell that story in a really detailed, expansive way. And, and to journey all over South Car- Carolina, we knew yeah. that we had to find a very economic way to tell that story. And so we ended up cutting out a key moment from the novel, which... <laughs> We were afraid about doing, but we did get the blessing from the novelist and she understood why we made that decision. And mm-hmm. in that way, we were able to take ownership of the piece. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Well, I can't wait to see it. I loved that book. And again, I would love to hear your words wrapped around that story. So that's very exciting to hear about. So you are continuing this journey with opera. So tell me a little bit about what draws you to that form and if you've got any operatic projects coming up that you can share with us, I'd love to hear about those too. You know, I I really have enjoyed number one going to opera, but also writing for opera because I feel a sense of freedom in storytelling, and I enjoy having the conversation with a composer and the two of us figuring out how do you decipher this narrative and turn it into something that is going to delight or perplex or anger or challenge or or audiences. And I also like that it's a new adventure for me. I feel as I get older, I don't want to stay in one place, is that I want to continue to follow that that, that sort of my curiosity to new spaces and opera's a new space for me. And, And after the success of Intimate Apparel, I really felt as though I want to figure out how can I continue this this journey. And so I'm writing an opera that's been commissioned by uh, Opera St. Louis, which with poet Ruby Ayo Gerber, which Ricky Ian Gordon is writing the music again. So this is the second time we're collaborating. And it's called This House, and it's about a haunted house. And so it's kind of like a modern Gothic opera. And in some ways, I feel it's a story that almost can't exist anywhere but on the operatic stage because of the nature of it. And then the other one is is an Afrofuturist opera, um, which I'm also writing with poet Ruby Ayo Gerber and composer Carlos Simon. And it takes place in the future in a city not unlike New Orleans after the Great Flood. Hmm. I am intrigued by both of these things. I'm a huge sci-fi fan. So when you said Afro-futuristic, that made one set of, you know, but I also love the Gothic. So yeah, so I'm excited about both of these projects. I can sort of tell that you are too. Where are you in the process right now and how are you feeling? You know that we finished the first draft of the libretto for This Is House and we, we got some encouraging feedback and there's still definitely work that we need to do. But I feel I feel really super jazzed and excited to, to dig back in. And that's the best feeling is when you do get feedback that fuels your imagination and you want to hit the computer keys immediately. And that's where I am with that. And the other one, we're in the rumination phase, the research Mm. and rumination phase. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm looking forward to to both pieces. And, you know, I'm just going to have to win the lottery so that I can fly everywhere to see this wonderful work. It's it's very exciting to hear you 
talk about taking on new challenges. And I, I think that that's something that when you get to a certain stage in your life, you can absolutely, especially with a career like you've had, you can absolutely rest on your laurels if that's what you chose to do. That's not the choice that you're making. And it intrigues me to see that you're, no, I've still got stuff to do. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's in, in important to continue to grow and evolve. And I do have, as you said, a nomadic imagination. And so it's not as easy to get up and go anymore because I have a 13-year-old child, but I can still do it with my work. I can still go to distant landscapes and have that adventure without having to leave my, my house. And that's become more and more important to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. You've described yourself also as an optimist and your new play, Clyde's, features some pretty heavy topics, but it's been described as a bright comedy. So tell us about Clyde's and why you decided this story could be told in this way. You know, Clyde's is really a play about food and resilience and optimism and just how you can build a community of oddball people that can become the sanctuary and a place of healing. And it's set in a sandwich shop in limbo, it's in a liminal space, which is a roads, roadside sandwich shop. And it, it's possibly run by the devil. And it's about this group of formerly incarcerated people who are trying to resurrect their lives, even though they face these insurmountable obstacles. And they find that they can create this space through their imagination and their creative power that can be transcended, that can lift them out of the, their malaise. The musical MJ is about the work and life of Michael Jackson, and you have described his music as your personal soundtrack. So what led you to want to write this musical right now? In, I've, I've always been a huge admirer of Michael Jackson's music. I've always been drawn to characters who are challenging characters who who I who I find enigmatic and I want to lean into understanding who Michael was as a creative artist and why he wrote the music that he he wrote and so I think that the writing of the musical really became an exploration for me is trying to just decipher this very curious brilliant artist who has, as you said, been the soundtrack of my life. That really resonated for me to hear you say that because there are five of us in our family. I'm the oldest of five, and we literally sang every single Jackson 5 song as it came out on the little you know, 45 records. Yeah. We'd put them on, we'd learn them, we'd learn the moves, and we were the Dallas Jackson 5. So absolutely <laughs> the soundtrack, right? <laughs> you also teach playwriting at Columbia University. And, you know, as, as your own teachers had such an impact on you as a playwright, what is the one lesson you want to impart to your students? Yeah, I'm, I'm preparing to go back into the classroom very shortly. And I was trying to think about this year as I enter that space, what am I going to tell them that's different than what I've been telling them in the past years, just because I feel like we're in a moment just globally of crisis and that has a different need 
for storytellers. And I think that what I want to impart to my students rather than telling them is the urgency for them to lean into the truth of where we are and figure out a way to communicate that to audiences is that it's really necessary for us to be in dialogue with the world. And it's really necessary for us as artists to be asking tough, uncompromising questions and embedding the answers in our work. And so I think that's what I would share with them is like my own personal struggle with how to meet this moment as an artist. I I think that so many of us as theater artists feel like we are at that inflection point and that we do have the power to do something in response to it. So I'm really glad to hear that, and I'm sure that your students are challenged by it, and that would be a, a great thing to to leave a classroom with, you know? <laughs> so yeah. that that's wonderful. But, you know, the other thing, just in listening to you speak, I'm curious about what they want to write about mm. and, you know, what's keeping them up night, up at night. They'll have new questions, I think. And that'll be a real interesting thing to, to see going forward. So you were one of the co-signers of the We See You White American Theater list of demands to improve careers and working conditions of BIPOC artists. Do you feel that any of the demands have been met? And where do you think theaters still need to grow? You know, I, I, I think that when the letter was, was written, which has now been a year and a half ago. It was a moment of cultural reckoning and we were re- were shut out of the industry. And so we did have all this space to begin to reflect on how we wanted to return to theater and why we wanted to turn to theater and how we could help reshape those spaces so that they would be safer and more equitable and more inviting to a diversity of voices, which is why I signed on to that letter. And when I returned to theater in September, I was encouraged by the fact that the majority of the spaces that I was invited to enter had began to interrogate their own practices and were trying to put into place new practices that made artists like myself as a Black theater practitioner more comfortable, whether it be, you know, diversity and equity training, which most places are doing now, or whether it was shaking up the ways in which the administrative offices looked at, because I think that a lot of people felt like you put Black people on the stage and there's diversity without examining the entire infrastructure of a system which is is perpetuating dangerous and harmful pra- practices and i think that many of the spaces that i entered into were doing were doing that but the question that i have is now that we've had some time to reflect are we going to continue to push are these institutions going to continue to be more accountable? Are these institutions going to change who they speak to and the way in which they speak to to folks? And that remains to be seen. But I do think that the letter had impact along with some of the other institutions like Black Theater United that were also pushing for a change. And I can attest to that fact in 
on on Broadway, at least for for Michael Jackson, is that I think people felt safer going back into that space because they felt heard. But still, there is like miles of road to walk. When you look at the unions on the Broadway stages, they are still predominantly white folks who are backstage. And that has to change because there's nothing more horrible than walking off the stage after you've had this joyful experience and not seeing yourself reflected by the people who who are supporting you. Mm, that is such a good point from the perspective, especially of a performer. But I hear your call to action, and I appreciate you reiterating that call to action because, as you said, there are many miles left on this road. But it is encouraging to see that some steps are being taken. We just kind of don't want it to be a panacea for right now. We want it to be practices going forward. But it's but we have to look at the entire theater echoes ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think that we only often think about theater as being you know, the people who are writing the plays and directing the plays and producing those plays. But we have to look at the people who are marketing those plays. (laughs) We we have to look at the people who are advertising those plays. You know, the entire ecosystem has to be reflective of the diversity of voices that are represented on the stage. Yeah. Thank you for that, because it is there. There's so much truth in those few words right there. Absolutely. So our theme for this season of the Echo Podcast is reinvention. Theaters are returning to live theater, live in-person productions, and we've all had to sort of rediscover how to make that, have that process again of, of being in person. What have you seen as some of the biggest challenges for coming back to in-person performances? COVID. Okay, that works. <laughs> I'll go with that answer. <laughs> and if it could finally go away, yeah. and it hasn't, you know. Yeah. It's like COVID, COVID, and COVID. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to go with that. So, so let's talk about how you've adjusted to it. So is there a particular change that you've made to your process post-COVID as an artist or just as Lynn Nottage? I I, I mean, COVID was such a a challenge to all of us and we're figuring it out in real time Mm -hmm. in in theater. And because it is a a virus that continues to evolve is that we have to stay, stay nimble and agile in the ways in which we respond. And so... I haven't changed the way in which I write because of COVID, but I certainly over the last year had to change the way in which I interacted in the room because of Mm. COVID. That there's a certain level of intimacy that we were not allowed because of COVID because we had to stay six feet apart. And the actors in in particular, when we're doing the opera, is that they had to wear masks while they were singing. And it's really difficult to read a lot of expression behind the mask. And so there is a lot of that rehearsal time in which the actors didn't get their full process because of this veil between them. Mm-hmm. Mm, what? That, and so yeah. that was, you know, that was a big adjustment. Yeah. A huge, a huge adjustment for everybody in, in the room. And when you're thinking, I'm, I'm trying to keep my, my, my body physically healthy, 
you've got to, that's got to be the top of mind thing. And that's got to cut into, you know, the creative process as well. Yeah, but that was our priority to ensure that the people who are brave enough to return to the stages were safe and they didn't feel afraid. Yeah. Very, very, very important. Our managing director, Kateri Kale, shared in a New York Times article this week or last week, and it I finally got a chance to read it, and it talked about how slowly people are returning to in-person performance. Can you think of anything, well, anything that you'd like to see theaters do to convince people to come on back? Yeah, you know, I I, I read that article, and I, you know, I think it's 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 some of it's true and some of it's not true. Mm-hmm. I, I my experience just anecdotally is that people are going back to theaters, at least the spaces that I've gone over the last few months. It feels like people are really eager to get back to live performance, whether it be in the black box or on on Broadway or be concerts in the park. I have not experienced a reluctance for people to return. I think it's true for some older people who are, core theater-going audience who are not going back. But I do see a lot of young people who are filling some of those spaces that they they didn't occupy prior to this. But I do, I mean, this is a much longer answer with regards to like, how can we invite people back across the threshold and make them feel comfortable and safe and included in those spaces? And I think that we have to do a lot of deep thinking about the ways in which we open our doors and invite people in, and also a lot of thinking about where the moment of engagement begins. Do we begin our plays online and invite people in? Do we begin our plays in in public spaces that are completely accessible and then invite people in? But I think that we have to think much more expansively about the notion of where and where a play begins. Yeah. And and I, I it, yeah, I, I, I in the cl- class that I teach, this is something that we we talk about a lot is because we have such a traditional notion of what a proscenium stage should look like and where the audience should be in proximity to that stage. And w- when the play begins with the curtain rising and with the curtain Falling is, and as a result, we don't give enough thought to how to shape narratives that take us on a longer journey. Well, you have just given me a ton to think about there. And I I think you're right. I think that that's part of the evolution of theater is we do need to think, where does the experience begin? Where does it begin? Yeah. Where does it start? Because that will give us an answer to a lot of who we are inviting in and how effectively we're doing that. What is one thing that you believe theaters can do to support work by women plus theater artists? Do their plays. You know, I'm so glad that you're so succinct. <laughs> this writing, this opera stuff has really been... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like, what can we do? Is like produce the work. Yeah. <laughs> That's the easy answer. And as we know, just statistically going around the country is that theaters still are not putting the narratives of women on stage in the same numbers as they are putting the narratives of men on the stage. And when you look at 
uh, you know, the women of color who are represented, that's even a smaller number. And so what can theaters do? Theaters can invest in the voices of not just young artists, but the multitude of women who've been telling stories for the last hundred years who still haven't had the opportunity to get onto those main stages. So my final question for you today is, in thinking about women in theater, is there one woman in theater who inspires you and why would you choose this person? Well, that's a a wonderful um, question right now because I've been deeply invested in the Lorraine Hansberry Initiative in collaboration with the the Lilly Awards, which is an organization dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in theater. And the Lorraine Hansberry Initiative is designed to celebrate and recognize the rich legacy of a woman who wrote perhaps the greatest play written in the 20th century, which is A Raisin in the Sun. If you revisit that play, it is damn near a perfect play that still has incredible resonance right for this moment. And in this initiative, we've actually commissioned a statue of Lorraine Hansberry by phenomenal artist Alison Saar, which is touring the country. And the goal is to get people thinking about the roles that artists have played in this culture, the roles that Black women have played in this culture, and also to raise money for a scholarship for women and non-binary playwrights to go to graduate school so that we can continue her legacy. And so the person who I'm thinking a lot about right now is Lorraine Hansberry and ways in which I can just honor her short but brilliant life. Wow. that I had a visceral reaction to you talking about that. And this is, <laughs> uh, she was remarkable, absolutely. And that there is finally some attention being paid to that in such a lovely way is, uh, that's great news to share. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I have had a delightful time talking with you this afternoon. Thank you for all of the great information and just inspiration that's come that's come our way through the comments that you've made. So where can our listeners find out more about you and see what other projects you have coming up? Hi, I have a website, which is lynnottage.com. And I share most of my information there. So please come visit. Fantastic. Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate your warmth and your questions. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Echo Offstage Theater Women Speak. Please be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to submit your own questions for our guests and for exciting news and updates on upcoming podcasts, readings, and productions. Please be sure to subscribe for Echo Offstage Season 6. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak, a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by women plus playwrights. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our podcast manager and producer is Eric Berg. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Graphics and social media by Lauren Floyd. Our theme music is by Lynn Barnett with Brent Nance. Executive produced by Kateri Kale, Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission to champion the diverse voices of women plus artists at echotheater.org. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas.
Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark. That's a hard one, I know, but... Yeah, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Ah, okay. (laughs) 